The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. And today is part two of our explainer on homelessness in Vancouver since the pandemic hit. Jen St. Dennis is the downtown Eastside reporter at the Taiyi, and she breaks down for us what the province and the city are doing for the literally hundreds of people sleeping in flooded tents and cold streets. And yesterday, in part one, we covered the closure of Oppenheimer. It's on our website and our podcast feed. And this second half of the conversation covers tiny homes, the $1 billion plan to buy SROs and RV parks. And a note that after we recorded this conversation, the federal government announced an additional $51.5 million they are providing to Vancouver for housing. That funding may help provide housing before Christmas. Here's Jen. Let's talk a little more about the tiny home village motion. I know the Taiyi has a lot of great coverage uh, on it. And if folks listening haven't had a chance to check it out, you know, after this chat, please go check it out. It's, it's quite fascinating. Um, and I, I, I think it's an interesting motion by Councillor Pete Fry. And he's been really pushing it. And it seems that city staff, is, their opposition to it is the idea that bylaws have to be changed. And there's another, there's another interesting point that, um, that city staff were really reluctant to allow or city manager Sadhu Johnston was really clear that he didn't think that a tiny home village demonstration project could be put together by the winter, which was something I think Councillor yeah. Lisa Dominado yeah. really pushed for. And I mean, I really mm-hmm. pause at that because it makes sense to me that we want folks housed before the winter because being you know, living in a tent during the winter sucks. But again, mm-hmm. that pushback from city staff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so we, okay, so I did you have to say up front, like the Taiyi has kind of been pushing this idea idea as you know we've been we've been running a lot of like columns from people like Patrick Condon um I've been doing some news stories we just wanted to explore the idea and kind of explore how other cities had done it so um if we seem a little gung-ho about the idea we we kind of are you know we want to explore it so we have been doing a lot on it and I gotta ask Jen Jen, because I I didn't notice that that Italia was really pushing that idea above all the uh, the four options and I'm just curious where (laughs) that came from yeah so I'd say that um I see that one of our editors got really excited about the idea and just wanted to explore it in 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 the in the Thai. So so that's why we've been doing that kind of coverage. So and I, I think it's I thought I thought it was a cool idea. So um, yeah. So like personally, I don't know if it's a solution. I'm I think it's interesting. I think we should explore it, but it might not be right for Vancouver. You know, we we don't have a lot of open land that's available for like a, a little tent, tiny home village. You don't want to have like shanty towns springing up and being you know really poor housing so i i do think we do we need to look at both sides of it um but i did talk to this builder whose um his specialty is building um uh, laneway houses uh brent davidson and he kind of had this whole he was able to give me rendering he's like oh i've been thinking about this idea for a long time and i have all these renderings of like putting in these little tiny townhomes, he calls them because they're all sort of stuck together. And he's like, we can just put these in in a lot of these vacant lots that are being used for like, you know, community gardens so a developer can get a tax break and we could actually put tiny homes in instead. And it, you know, he gave me these renderings and it was really persuasive. It was like, this, you know, when you, when you compare it to a big tent city and I just thought this could be something that could be interesting to try. 
but then we also saw the the kind of feedback from staff where they were they were really worried about the building methodology that it was you know this very basic buildings that don't have they don't have insulation they don't have power um, they're worried about fire suppression which is all of the things that those are really good points to make like those are those are things that the city has to um, you know what one of the biggest jobs of a city is to make sure that buildings are safe. So when the city came back with those concerns, I was like, well, that's interesting too. You know, we do have to think about what we're creating. Um, and that warning that, that these things that are temp quote temporary can become permanent, I think is something we need to pay attention to as well. Right. Because the idea with tiny homes is that they are not permanent, that they are a step towards helping, just a step to help folks get off the street so they're not being rained on. And with the idea that folks would then move on to permanent housing. And I think it was interesting to her. I think I read in, I just want to say that I think I read in one of the columns uh, in the Taiyi, I think it was by Dr. Patrick Condon, who was also on the show I think last week, was two weeks ago. If folks haven't heard that one, it was an interesting chat about affordability. But I think what Patrick said was that in his column, that was that, you know, these tiny homes would cost about 10000 each. And city staff in their report were like, no, 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 these these uh, tiny homes would cost between 80000 to 120000 each. So right. there's, there's some disparity about like, what folks are thinking, what the cost would be. Um, by city staff and next and so local advocates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we we have to figure out what exactly that cost is, and I don't I don't quite remember whether that in, whether that increased cost was because the city was like, listen, we have to make them more than what you're what, than what you're presenting. Like we can't just oh, have was, these little it was site servicing. Let's see. I think I'm, I've got a report in front of me right now. So I think sleeping pod only. The cost of units. A cost per unit is forty thousand, and self-contained tiny home with kitchen and washroom is eighty thousand. And then there's some extra costs for like site servicing and site prep. So I think yeah, it's a disparity between you know where folks are getting their building estimates, and maybe the city adding on the site servicing and site. Yeah, prep. and I think that um, originally Bryn Davidson's idea was just to have the sleeping pod and to have like a central place that would be have like washrooms and showers, almost like like at, like at a campsite where you don't have your own bathroom and kitchen and the city staff were like really like we don't want that like that's we'd really want them to have um we'd really want them to have their own bathroom and their own um and their own kitchen well given covid considerations that seems like a reasonable thing at least for the next yeah it does (laughs) it Um, does like i like i say like staff did bring up a lot of good points and i think that you have to be really careful when you're going forward with with this kind of thing And let's just, and just if, to be clear for the listeners, I be, what the motion that was passed was, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, that the motion actually passed by city council was for staff to report back on recommendations on how to change bylaws, zoning bylaws specifically to accommodate tiny homes. And secondly, to have a tiny home village demonstration project ASAP, but with no fixed deadline. That's right. Yeah. So we don't really know when it will happen. But I think it's interesting because the city has done demonstration projects before. I don't know, know if you remember when they were demonstrating the tiny, um, sorry, the modular um, housing unit at right outside the art gallery. And they had, they set it up and they allowed people to tour it and go inside. And, and then later they started building temporary modular housing and it's really been a good solution. So I, maybe this could be the same thing. Let's move on to the exciting $1 billion plan. Yes, this is a very exciting plan. It's a separate plan from what we've been talking about. Lots of plans. Lots of plans. Or 
and I, I'll I'll just be clear. We'll go we'll go to back to the last. So earlier we had talked about the city staff report where uh, city staff have been asked to research five options. And I'm ju- just going to be clear that this one billion dollar plan was not part of the five options. This is something else that came up, but but I think it's quite important, and so we're going to address it. In fact, it's so important that I think it was in a, I, I actually I know it was in the Tyree. I think it was Karen Warren who said this is going to be a watershed moment. Yeah, I think that was Wendy Peterson, but um, yeah, oh, Wendy, sorry, Wendy, thank yeah you. Wendy Peterson, and who's a, been a longtime SRO advocate for SRO tenants, and then Karen Ward, who is, um, you know, I jokingly call her the mayor of the downtown east side. She's very, um, you know, has all the policy ideas going on. She um, uh, works for the city as a drug policy advisor. She also was involved in this plan. And, and it is, it's all to do with the, with the SRO buildings and, and a future for them. And maybe, Jen, could you lay out for us what this $1 billion plan is? Right. So the $1 billion plan is to access money that the federal government has already um, kind of um, put out there as part of, as part of their housing funding and to use that $1 billion fund to, um, do this big acquisition plan to to buy all of these SRO buildings. Um, And it's just so groundbreaking because um, these buildings, as you know, they've been in, um, you know, they've been in the news because some of them have been so badly in such bad repair that they're actually literally falling down. Um, Like the region in the Balmoral, which the city actually had to expropriate. But then there's a whole other sort of set of buildings that are just, they're at risk of being gentrified. Like a lot of them have already been kind of renovated and fixed up and are renting at way higher rents, even though some of them don't, still don't have their own bathroom. Um, so there's just this constant concern that on the one hand, the buildings are in such bad repair, but on the other hand, that they're also being lost um, because they have traditionally been that sort of housing for the people who, who you know, don't, who only make the shelter, who only can, can pay the shelter rate. Right. So if my understanding is correct, our, this $1 billion plan is to purchase um, purchase SRO buildings from private operators so that, and with the intention of the city keeping these, remodeling or renovating these units and keeping those units at, affordable to those uh, on income assistance at shelter rate. And I believe the, I believe the estimation was something like about 2,500 units plus 1,300 units that we're not going to acquire, but something we're going to remodel or provide rent assistance for and keep those under um, external, external providers. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was interesting that like just seeing, and the numbers were quite stark, the the case that city staff made for this plan, um, the number of SRO units going down, available at shelter, the shelter rate component of income assistance. And for, for our listeners, that's $375 a month, the shelter rate uh, for folks on income assistance. There are only 77 units, 77 units in all of downtown Eastside um, available at that shelter rate, which is like, we have a lot shocking. more than 70. Yeah, it's shocking. Need, um, <laughs> yeah. What I find shocking is that some of these renovated SRO rooms, like, and keep in mind, like, if you've been inside an SRO, like, it's an SRO room, like, some of them are apparently renting for something like, I don't know, anywhere between $900 and $1,600 a month. Um, So I found that shocking as well. Um, But yeah, just the loss, these units have just, there's been just a huge loss of these units because investors have been buying these buildings and kind of turning them over 
and renovating them, which is, it's good that they're renovating them, but in the process, um, they're completely being lost to that kind of most affordable housing. Right, because I think what you're speaking of is what a city staff called the whatever the term was, the sort of higher end SRO buildings. They were talking about the lower end, yeah, the middle, which is such a weird concept, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. But I, I see these, I see these um, rooms come up on Craigslist, and I always screenshot them because I'm just fascinated with them because you see them come up and they're like, I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's an SRO room. No, it doesn't have a bat, its own bathroom, and it's going for like nine hundred dollars a month, like or $1,000 a month. And I'm just so shocked that someone would pay, pay that. But they get rented out to, you know, to students, to people who are working in the service industry, like to sort of like, you know, these working class people who need housing. But in the process, they're being lost to the people who are even at the, on the lower rung of that housing continuum. Right. So we have, we have these lower end of SRO buildings, middle end and higher end. As, as, and as you're saying, this higher, these higher end ones have become being renovated, made to look pretty nice, I, I think, actually. Uh, they're small. Yeah, and, a, lot, I mean, a lot of them are, are these, a lot of them are like heritage buildings. You know, they're, they're interesting buildings. They're just, they just, a lot of them, you know, haven't been kept up. And, but when they are renovated, they're they're not bad. <laughs> right. So I think, the, I think the case for this that city staff made was that if we don't put in this money to buy these SROs, then SROs, our middle, that, that middle portion of, you know, not that, not that pretty. They're, they're not, certainly not built up for like professionals, but they were, but our middle end of SRO buildings were either go, sort of deviate or go down to the lower end where they're, you know, pretty filthy and disgusting um, or, you know, become, become these posh adult dormitories. Um, and then we're missing this middle. It seems like a, it seems like a general theme in Vancouver, the missing middle when it comes to the house. missing middle, the missing middle of SROs. It's <laughs> kind of a fun concept. So yeah, this is basically just, I think that there's been a movement in general. Um, we've also seen a lot of interest in, there's this organization called the BC Nonprofit Housing Association. And that organization has really been pushing this idea, you know, to the province and to the federal government that, listen, the apartment buildings, these older apartment buildings are really being lost to gentrification as well. And we're losing this housing stock and we're never going to get it back. And it's erasing all of this new housing that we're building is not going to, is, is not going to actually make up for those lost units. And so the BC Nonprofit Housing Association has been pushing this idea that governments would help the nonprofit sector acquire these properties. And so we're kind of seeing, it's kind of a general trend in housing right now that you're kind of seeing governments starting to wake up to the fact that, no, we do have to be more aggressive about outright acquiring these properties. Because if we don't, um, it just, it doesn't matter. All this money that we're putting into building new housing is just going to be worthless. Like it's not going to make up the numbers that we need to really make an impact on the housing crisis. I just want to play the devil's advocate here, Janet. And this, I just think it's necessary because I was, as I was looking at the commentary um, on the plan, um, actually what happened, I think someone posted your article on the $1 billion SRO plan to Reddit and I was going through the commentary there. And, you know, Reddit, oh, is, no. not, <laughs> Reddit is not the kindest place for commentary when it comes to uh, yeah, many social... To homelessness and yeah, drug addiction. Yeah, it sure isn't. But, but let's just... But I think it's, I think it's important for us to address the points that people bring up. And someone brought up the point that they were looking at only the 2,500 units um, that were going mm -hmm. to be acquired and not the 1,000 300 that would be um, 
that would be assist financially funded in some way through I think it was a rent assistance program. So it's depend. It's either twenty five just to get right down to details. It's twenty five hundred. So two thousand five hundred about units that are going to be purchased plus the one thousand three hundred units that are going to be made available through this plan additional units so that and i so i ran the math a billion dollars divided by um 3,800, so that's 2,500 plus 1,300. That brings us to about 200 and just over $260,000 per unit, which as a taxpayer, I mean, that is a fair concern that that's a lot of money per unit. Is that actually the best use of our money? Right. Yeah, I I actually don't know the answer to that. Like, I'd have to look at the numbers. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just I mean, I know that there and there and there has been criticism too of of the BC government buying the the hotels at a pretty inflated price. I think that the hotels hotel units that they've been buying have been something like three hundred. It's it's been like quite quite a lot as well. And so I think that's a valid point to make. Um, whether it's better to build all new, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to look into it more. <laughs> but that's the, that's the plan anyway that has been passed by city council. And just to be clear, so I couldn't figure this out looking at the city reports and staff presentations um, of whether the $1 billion, um, it's not all coming out from Vancouver's budget for sure. We're no, no. The idea is that they would get, they would apply for this money from the federal government, which is specifically identified, you know, these funds that, that cities can apply for, that different governments, levels of government can apply for. Um, so they would have to be successful to get the money, but they seem fairly confident that they will be. So I don't know, maybe they've had talks. I'm not sure. Um, and then that they would use that $1 billion to, to do this major acquisition project, which, I mean, obviously it wouldn't happen all at once. It would be as these properties come up for sale, they would buy them. I'm I'm just so curious because I think that I couldn't figure out the probability that we would be able to get that funding from government. As you said, it it it, it does seem like city staff is fairly confident, and I'm I you know who knows what conversations city staff have, have had with provincial and federal staff. But I'm just I just don't would hate for this to become one of those things that you know made lots of headlines and then doesn't actually come to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see on that, I suppose. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So the thing that makes me hopeful is that the advocates who have been working on this file for so many years and who definitely have been have seen government fail them time and time again, they're excited. And so I'm like, well, if they're excited, then this plan is worth a second look. And I'm planning to do more reporting on it. I don't. I I did a preliminary story. So when you're talking about like, is this really good value for money and all that stuff? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question yet, but I do plan to do some more reporting on this because it does seem like such a groundbreaking plan. Well, I, and I'll be sure to follow you on that. And I'm sure I'll see that some version of the article on Reddit. Um, And is this a good time for us, Jen, to move on to the RV parks? Uh, Sure. Yeah, go ahead. So the last option that city staff presented in this report, um, that I don't think we've talked yet, uh, talked about yet, is the RV parks. And so uh, this, this city staff report is the one that we, talk, we talked about er, earlier where city staff were, was asked to research these five options. And RV parks is an interesting one because there are already RVs 
parked around Rathcona Park, as, and as folks who have been around Rathcona Park or just around different parts of Vancouver have seen folks living in RVs, it's, you know, it's very open secret. Um, and I, I left this one for last because I don't think it's the most impactful one. And we're not going to house, you know, we're not going to house hundreds of people, but it is certainly very important to people who are living in RVs that they can continue to do that. And I just found it interesting that, that as this option was being discussed, that there was this, um, that word came out that they were f- going to enforce the parking enforcement bylaw. Yeah, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> um, yeah, so so this is one of the options was create an RV park because right now people park their their vehicles, their vans, their their you know their motorhomes. They'll park them somewhere, often in like sort of industrial parts of East Vancouver, or there's like different spots all over the city. Strathcona Park around Strathcona Park is one of them. Um, City staff are really not keen on the idea, and I don't think the city has any plans to move forward with the, with making an RV park. But right after, um, yeah, I saw this thing come up. I'm on this like downtown east side um, listserv that the city sends out just about different planning decisions around the downtown east side. And one of them was that, yeah, they were going to start um, enforcing their parking bylaw, which of course is like, you can't, you're not supposed to park on the city like between you're not supposed to park at a park between 6 a.m., 6 p.m. and 10 and 7 a.m. And that they were going to start enforcing this bylaw. And I was sort of surprised because um, it seemed like odd timing after they had just had this like gut-wrenching discussion about homelessness um, and that it was going to be happening around Strathcona Park because those people have been there long before the tent city. So I was just confused about why there was no action to remove the tent city, but there did seem to be this action to remove Strathcona, the Strathcona Park um, motorhome people. And what the city ended up telling me was that they were doing, they're doing like a citywide enforcement action against people who live in their vehicles anyway, and that Strathcona was just next on their list. But I just found it so bizarre because we've had all these reports about how much homelessness is growing, and I just was like, I just don't, I still don't really understand why they're choosing now to enforce the bylaw. So I guess I'll be keeping my eye on it and see whether they actually do it. But the people who live at Strathcona Park in their vehicles are very stressed out about this. And it's kind of unfortunate. It does seem odd. And I also wonder where that drive comes from. Because I may have missed it. Because there's yeah, so- I, I, Honestly, I think it was just part of the bureaucracy of the city grinding along and they didn't really think about it. That's, I mean, that's personally what I think happened. Um, So that's why I I did a story about it just to raise the issue that this was happening and I'll continue to follow it. Um, But yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure where that came from. And just to be clear about the option, about RV parks as an option, um, in that city staff was asked to research. I haven't seen anything I haven't it's seen not it. moving. I mean, I don't think it's moving forward. City staff kind of just said, you know, yes, we, we looked at it a little bit in other cities. Other cities have found that it doesn't really work that well, that there's sort of like sanitation problems or whatever, and they've had to close them down. I think they looked at one in Seattle, but there wasn't really much and there wasn't really much discussion and there hasn't really been much after. So I don't really think that's an option that the city is looking at right now. Okay, let's, I think that's it for the five options. Um, and let's talk a little bit about what snakes and sort of considerations that we'll, we'll keep looking out, 
for look, looking at. So, I mean, I think, so what's next? So there have been all these decisions that we've, we've spent now almost 50 minutes talking about. And, but it, as, we, as we mentioned at the start, there doesn't seem to be anything that, that's going to come right away. The earliest thing that I know of that will, that will come is this navigation center that the province, province, mm, uh, province, yeah, province, that's right. a couple yeah. months ago. And that's only something like 60 beds. So, yeah, if my yeah. memory serves me right. So, and and to be clear for folks, the navigation center was is not meant to be t- permanent housing. It's only just a sort of a, to help folks navigate their way, get folks off the streets, give them a uh, give them a bed for a little bit, and really point folks to uh, really help move folks along. So it's not permanent housing, um, and it's only sixty beds, and it's not going to come in time for the winter. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the navigation center. I think they're supposed to come out in this. Spring? Next spring? I think it was. So, and then, yeah. And more housing, think, too, I think. Yeah. Yes, and more modular housing. I mean, the province continues to announce more housing. And there was a big announcement before the um, campaigning for the election began that the province was going to um, fund 450 more units of housing for Vancouver. And so that's good news. But yeah, when it comes to like what exactly is happening right now for Strathcona Park, the answer sort of is nothing. Um, and, and I was just talking to one of the organizers and she was saying, you know, we really need to have some more amenities from the city. Like right now the bathrooms get closed, get locked at dusk. And then they, they have also have problems getting water. So there are some really basic just health and safety needs, I think, that are not being addressed right now for the Strathcona Park tent city. And it's not clear if they will ever will be. I don't know what I would do if my washroom got locked at dusk. I know I, I have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. <laughs> I think about that and I think about how that must cause health problems. Yeah, it's, it's not ideal for sure. And that was part two of our conversation with Jen St. Dennis, downtown Eastside reporter at the Taiyi. Jen gave us a primer on what has been happening with homelessness in the city since the pandemic hit. If you haven't heard part one of our conversation, go check it out on our website or podcast feed. And that's it for today. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, which is super local morning news show here on Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. I'm Tan Macy. And as always, please tell us what you think of the show. We're super curious. I'm at Macy at coopradio.org. That's M-E-I-X-I at coopradio.org. Ciao. Take care. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.